Hey friends, this is Meg Rowley and Grady Rains on Cultural Conversations with iHub. We're excited to have our guest speaker today, Ken Wilson. Ken will talk to us about his experience in international business with startup companies, what it was like moving his family to a rural town in Japan, and what he learned from working on a joint venture in a different cultural setting. Ken, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. I was uh, born and raised in Utah and uh, spent all of my uh, childhood here. I actually didn't leave the state to uh, live anywhere else until I graduated from BYU. And then I went uh, to Texas. But um, yeah, I love the outdoors, uh, which is, I think, normal for anyone that grows up in Utah. Uh, my, my Disneyland is national parks. So that's where I like to spend my time is out, outdoors. This is a fun question we like to start asking people. What is something that someone would be surprised to learn about you? I think most people are surprised to learn that I'm a first-generation American. Both my parents immigrated. My father came with his parents after World War II. And uh, then he married my mother and brought her over. So they're both from Great Britain. And um, most people are surprised to learn that I'm first-gen. Interesting. So now could you give us a brief description of your career path? Sure. So um, I graduated from Brigham Young University with a Master's of Accounting, and uh, my first job was with Advanced Micro Devices, otherwise known as AMD. And um, the probably that the related to international business was that they were looking for someone who spoke Japanese and who uh, had financial acumen. They had a joint venture that they had started with uh, Fujitsu, and needed somebody to be an analyst for them. So I left uh, BYU, uh, moved to Texas and uh, started working for AMD, uh, supporting the joint venture. And then after a year, um, they asked if I would move over there to, to live and work. And uh, so I took my family over there for three years and uh, worked at the joint venture, then came back for about three years. And then they asked me to go back over again, uh, this time as an interim site controller uh, to support the joint venture because the um, native controller uh, had left the company and so they needed to hire somebody and then onboard them and train them. And I was kind of there to, to fill in and help with that process. Uh, then, so it was about eight years with AMD. Um, with the joint venture, then they spun out that joint venture into uh, expansion. And um, the second time that I was in Japan was when I uh, left AMD uh, upon coming back. And I started with Intel Micron joint venture in Lehigh. Um, they had just founded that joint venture. It's a memory joint venture. And um, I worked there, kind of formed the FP&A team uh, as they were getting started, uh, set up the business planning process and uh, also cost reduction process. Um, it was a NAND flash memory, which is very uh, cost sensitive. So you're always working on trying to reduce those costs and be, be lowest costs uh, in the industry. Um, so set that up. After about two years with them, uh, somebody who... I had worked for it at AMD, asked if I'd come join uh, Topon Photomask. It was a Japanese-owned uh, company. It had previously been DuPont and then uh, purchased by Topon Printing. Um, so he wanted to utilize, again, my language skills and, and knowledge of Japan culture. Uh, so I went and worked there for about four years. We had six global manufacturing sites in Germany, France, uh, China, the U.S., and one more I can't remember. <laughs> um, anyway, so with that, 
I was there for about four years and then left to join a startup. I wanted to get some startup experience and uh, had an opportunity through a friend to be introduced to the CFO of a Goal Zero, which was a three-year-old startup at that point. So I came back to Utah for that. That was very fun. Lots of things to improve and, and work on because it's uh, going from kind of a startup basis to more of a mature processes. Uh, so help kind of put some discipline into some of their financial processes. I was there for about a year. Then I went back to Advanced Micro Devices in Texas uh, during the time that they were doing a kind of a financial turnaround and, and really blank sheet redesign of their microprocessors. I got to support the R&D organization, which I really enjoy working with engineers. So that's what really appealed to me that, in that position. Uh, worked closer with them to kind of help prioritize their spend and keep the roadmap products rolling while also trying to meet strict financial targets because of the fact that we were in a financial turnaround. So that was very fun. Then I left there and came back to Utah to uh, work for another startup, uh, Box Pop Me. They do market research and customer experience uh, video feedback. I've been there with them since March. You've had a pretty big variety of experience. Yes. That's super interesting. So you went to Japan once for three years. Yes. Went back again with the same company. How long were you there the second time? Uh, for a year. For a year. And then you worked on the global team, but was that living back in Japan again, or that was... No, so I have worked um, in, in all of my positions. Yeah. Um, I've worked with global companies, even the venture capital funded startups mm-hmm. uh, were international. So uh, it seems like more and more companies um, from an earlier stage are going global as quickly as possible just yeah. to really reach all the markets. Um, so in every company I've worked for, I've always been interacting with people from other countries and cultures. Okay, so I guess that leads me to different tangents of questions. First, I'd be really curious to hear about your experience in Japan and then share about startups and them going international. You said that your experience in Japan was really impactful for you and your family. Can you tell us what the transition was like, how it was starting to work there? So my experience was probably a little bit unique because a lot of people that go overseas will go to big cities. And a lot of times those big cities will have like American schools and, um, you know, international grocery stores and things like that. But um, when we went to Japan, we went to a very small town in northern Japan in um, Fukushima Prefecture. And uh, it was a town of about 100,000 people. Uh, very beautiful area, uh, much like Utah. It's a, it was in a basin surrounded by mountains and uh, had all four seasons and just a lovely place to live. But um, there was no international school, so my kids had to go uh, right into native school. And um, we had a little bit of trouble at first because, uh, you know, they didn't understand the language. And so they get bored and they would get into trouble, naturally. Um, so uh, we started actually doing some home homeschool type uh, worksheets and stuff that we would send off to school for them to do when they're bored so that they wouldn't get in trouble. And when they started um, not completing those at school, we knew that they were kind of transitioning into understanding. And, and um, actually, my oldest child uh, was there from about the age of two to five, and so did kindergarten. And then the second time that we went over, he was in the eight to nine range and just loved it and really started um, taking off and learning the kanji, which is the Japanese writing style that's borrowed from China. And so he, he would write those all the time. He would, In fact, before we lived there, he kind of invented his own language anyway. So for him to like learn a second language was really fun and interesting. And he even had his own writing style and the language that he developed himself. So kanji for him was, was really fun. 
the thing about living in the country, I think, is that you really had to rely on more of the locals. We really had to go native um, to, to really flourish. You know, one of the nice things is, is um, because the church that I belong to is international, there's units everywhere. Uh, it was very easy for us to assimilate. In fact, a lot of the expats that had been there for two, three years were surprised at how quickly we knew where everything was and we knew, uh, you know, where the cheap places to buy things were. And, and um, they're like, how do you know all this stuff? And I'm like, well, you can come to church with us and find out. <laughs> um, but um, that was fun. You know, people really reached out and helped us and we became a part of the community. And I think my wife struggled a little bit at first because of the language. Um, I had previous experience from a church mission, so I was fairly comfortable living there and, and with the language. She struggled a little bit, but but uh, after about a year, really became quite comfortable living there and, and had made some friends in the neighborhood, and they were teaching her uh, how to speak the local dialect, which I didn't even know. So so she knew a lot of things that I didn't know. And then, you know, driving's different because they're on the other side of the road, and the, the town that we lived in was... Um, a castle town and they deliberately make the roads so that it's a maze to get to the castle so you can't have a direct attack and so some of the streets would turn into these one ways really narrow and you're like oh i'm stuck so um you know things like that were challenging um i think at first but it became you know just an adventure sounds like a lot of learning on everyone's part yeah really interesting for your kids though learning the language and being immersed do they still have those language skills today so my oldest uh, took three years of Japanese in, in high school, but they didn't offer it in high school, so he took it to the community college. And uh, he's currently serving a mission over there. Um, he's doing really well in the language. My other kids, they know a little bit of stuff, but they've forgotten most of it, I think. But I think the early exposure, though, definitely helps for learning and remembering later, and even just learning other languages, because you're just familiar with more sounds than you were you know, if you grew up in just one area. Definitely. So you talked a little bit about like personal life, getting your family settled in. What was it like in the work environment there? Were there any big cultural differences you had to get used to? Yeah, so this is Japan. So um, it's very much a work culture. Uh, in fact, they have a word for people that go to work. It's their, they're the kaisha man, the company man. Um, and historically, you would leave college, go work for a company for life. You'd be a lifetime employee. A lot of that's changed, I think, recently. But um, it was still pretty much in effect when I worked there. So the interesting thing about Japan is that uh, what you study in college is not always relevant to what you do in work because they hire you and they train you. And that's, again, kind of the company man uh, philosophy. So uh, we'll tell you what we want you to do. We'll you know, make a path for you. We'll train you and, and you'll just be a lifetime employee. Um, so that was a, an interesting shock for me because, you know, I'm working with this guy in accounting and finance and he's got a history major and, um, but he has lots of experience and years in, in accounting and finance. So he became, you know, very comfortable and, and um, skilled at his job, but just to learn that he had no, you know, probably previous background was interesting to me. Uh, so that was one of the differences. They're very much a work culture, so they... You know, they come into work and they work long hours and even after work, they have a lot of after work functions where they'll go and hang out, which was difficult for some of the expatriates because, you know, they, they weren't used to that kind of culture. But I think it's very important that if you are going to work overseas, you want to try and adapt and, you know, uh, become as much as you can like the people that you're working with. There are exceptions, of course. And I did appreciate that I actually reported to a uh, an American supervisor. So 
you know, there was a little bit of exception there for me. But I did try to attend, like if they had after work parties, I would go to those because in Japan, very much part of the culture is food and eating together, drinking together, etc. So I would go to those work events. Um, the interesting thing about uh, Japan too is that when you leave work, you're supposed to say, you know, excuse me for being rude and leaving early and and stuff. There's like formalities to what you say, and then they yell back at you. Oh, you're such a hard worker. That's one of the interesting things about Japan is that when you enter and leave places, there's more of a public declaration of you know I'm entering or I'm leaving, and and um, recognition by the group that that's happening. Those are probably the biggest things that I adjust to. One interesting thing, I I'm always I've been a lifetime cyclist, so for me to ride bikes to work is is normal and. And it's very normal in that country, so um, I fit right in as far as that goes. But that's in nice. the U.S., people think, oh, you're crazy. Why do you ride a bike to work? That's true. We were talking about that just this morning, riding your bike in the cold. But yeah, it is a fun thing that most people do. It's kind of sad we don't as much here. Uh, what, you know, one of the big differences, too, when you go live overseas is obviously the food, um, especially in Asia. It's much different. And, and for me, that's one of the exciting things because it really expanded my, my palate. And, you know, my wife wanted to make a lot of the different local cuisine and our kids still love a lot of the um, Asian food and that's definitely been one of my favorites. I imagine good food for sure. I'm curious I've heard well after learning about Japanese culture they talk a lot about how it's a very hierarchical structure and work. You did say your superior was American though do you think that made a difference? So it's interesting you bring that up and that was um, actually one of the reasons they wanted me to go to Japan um, because we weren't getting the kind of information that we wanted or needed in a timely way. And so really they wanted me to integrate into the organization so that I could get quicker access and better access to information because um, it is very hierarchical. So, you know, different layers of people have to approve something before it becomes official and they'll actually share it. So I had to kind of intercept the, the data at, at points where it wasn't quite official, but I knew it was complete, like it was substantially complete. So. By building relationships of trust and, and you know, not abusing my access to information early, I was able to get um, a lot more information and, and really help our company understand the joint venture a lot better. Uh, it was formally run by our partner in Japan, and so they had all the information they wanted. And for us, it was really, we're dependent on them. And so really building those relationships and getting, getting access to the data really helped, you know, make our financial forecasts a lot better, um, and also our U.S. GAAP adjustments a lot cleaner. So that was one of the reasons to go, was to get kind of break the hierarchy and get what we needed. To get you in there, get things in a little quicker, rather than perfecting every step. Yes. It is interesting, those little things about culture. And I'm also curious, I've read that sometimes communication styles are a little bit different. Like, that as Americans, we can be more direct about things. Especially in Japan, they don't say no. They have about a hundred ways to say no, but they don't say no. So you have to read into the subtle expressions that, that they use. And you have to learn what no is. So, you know, if you ask somebody to do something and they're like, it's pretty much no. That basically means, ah, oh, that's difficult. So if they, you know, if they pause and they say it's really difficult, then, you know, it's probably not going to happen. Whereas in U.S., you know, if someone says, oh, that's difficult, then you're like, okay, well, what resources do you need? You know, how can I help you? What, you know, how, how long is it going to take? You don't really take it difficult as, as like a no. But for them to be polite, it's, it's just not polite to say no. And so they're going to come up with different excuses or, or phrases to kind of indicate that, you know, I'm not saying no, but you can read into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not going to happen. Yeah. 
Very interesting. Communication otherwise, too, is, uh, you know, they definitely have a different style. Like in America at the time, we had cubicles and tall cubicles. I think a lot of companies now have gone to short cubicles or no cubicles at all. Um, open space, open office space. They always had open office space. So that was one thing that was different when I went over there, but I actually like it because you know, you know, who's around. Whereas when you have a cubicle wall around you, you feel a little bit isolated, but it's like a false sense of isolation because people can still hear you, right? Your neighbors can still hear you. And sometimes that can be a drawback because people feel like they're private. So they say some things you're like, you know, I really think you should take that conversation somewhere else because I didn't want to know that about you. But um, in an open environment, you know, you're much more careful about what you say because it's all business. And then the other thing is uh, you can see people coming and going. So, you know, instead of getting up and have to walk over or, um, you know, waiting for them to respond to an email request, you can see them go over and talk to them. So I felt like it was a lot better environment for speaking to people directly about issues. You know, I prefer face-to-face communication over email, text, you know, the instant message, all that stuff. I think face-to-face is usually better and it's quicker resolution. People that try and communicate via email, it's just, that's so slow. (laughs) Yeah, especially when they're right there. Yeah. And it's lower quality communication. Yes, because in written words, you don't have the nonverbal cues. And so something that somebody writes um, in words can be offensive if you misinterpret what they were saying. You know, maybe they were just being direct or whatever, but you can misinterpret that. Whereas if I'm talking to you, then you can see, oh, hey, he's got a smile on his face. He's not meaning anything by what he just said there. So whenever you can, face-to-face communication works. Highly recommended. I think especially when dealing with other cultures, that's a smart way to go about it. Yeah. To avoid the cues that you don't understand the same. Well, and before I actually moved over there, I was struggling to get information or answers to questions. And even just making a trip over and meeting them face-to-face, spending some time with them, it dramatically improved the responses and the response rate that I had. So even just a business trip can do wonders for just building the relationship to where, you know, people are a lot more responsive. That's very interesting. How do you think you were able to land this international experience? What tools really helped you to get that job? So I would say definitely having language and, and culture experience helped. And then just having this, the professional skill set, you know, getting a master's in accounting also helped prepare me for this specific role that they had. I'd say, you know, for people that are interested in doing international experiences, really being open to continuous learning, you know, taking those assignments where you are working with international people, learning about their culture. I think one one of the problems that, that Americans have sometimes is a little bit of arrogance about our own culture. You know, we think that... Um, we're this great example to the world and everyone should be like us. But in reality, there's so much uniqueness in the world and some things that they do, they do better than we do. So having an open mind to, to different cultures is good. I think part of that too is, is like for me, you know, in, in all my roles, I've worked with international people. So I try to ask them about their culture, ask them about, about you know, what it's like to live in their countries. Um, if they ever have an opportunity to like share food, food is a great bridge builder between cultures. I always go into that and I'll eat whatever they offer. I'll at least try it, you know, and I'll try to stomach it as well and finish it. <laughs> but not everything you eat is good, right? But it's, it's sharing. I think, I think most people in this world like to share what's important to them and food's one of those things. And then of course, you know, what's important to you is, is family and, and your culture and things like that. So really asking and, fi- and finding out about that person 
uh, helps a lot to build those bridges. Uh, but back to your question about, you know, how to do an international assignment. I was very interested in that when I was in college. And so I asked a lot of uh, companies that I was interviewing with what it would be like or what are the chances of doing an overseas assignment. And most of the feedback I got was that, yeah, if you come and work with us for a while, you know, you may get an opportunity in 10 years or so. I think that the thing that probably accelerates that is if you are engaged with other cultures and you run to the problems in the company. A lot of times those problems are around, you know, international issues. And if you are willing to, to tackle problems, you become one of those people that they, that they trust with, you know, difficult assignments. And overseas assignments can be very difficult. So that's one thing that um, definitely will help prepare you. Uh, the people that I know that have done overseas assignments that maybe didn't have the language or cultural background were people that chase problems and were problem solvers. And then they get an opportunity. You know, one particular uh, person that I that I know, you know, they were having trouble in the plant in Italy, and nobody wanted to go. And he raised his hand and volunteered and said, "I'll go over there and fix it." And they said, "All right, go have it, have a shot." And he did, and that turned into other um, opportunities in the company. Another friend of mine that went to assignment overseas was just really good at what he did. That was when I was with I Am Flash, so we were ramping a fab. He was really good at at the capital uh, planning. And they were going to ramp a new fab in Singapore. And so who are they going to tap? They're going to tap the guy that did a good job the first time they ramped a fab. So Really show them that you're a hard worker. Run to the problems. You know, because a lot of people like to avoid problems because it's work and it's hard and it's risky. And so, you know, some people want to get comfortable with just what they're doing. But if those people that run to the problems are the people that uh, really advance and learn quickly and get the, the best opportunities in my mind. Yeah, and I think it does show that you are adaptable, and that's what you need for someone who is willing to work international is they can adapt to change and things that are different overall. So that was the general interactions of your overseas working with international business. What was it like in the other companies here at the U.S.? What was the nature of your interactions? So part of it's been working with, like, service centers. A lot of companies have done service centers overseas where they outsource some of their labor-intensive tasks into, you know, lower-cost markets, things like that. Probably the interaction there is is maintaining uh, respectful relations. You know, sometimes it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, they outsource that because it's labor-intensive and they want, you know, lower cost and, and stuff. But those people are just as skilled and hungry for, you know, process improvement and things. And I think, you know, if you treat them with respect, they have great ideas. And I've had uh, really good opportunities with working with them to implement better ideas and implement changes. If you discount, you know, their opinion or whatever, then you're not going to have those kind of wins. The other thing is, I think when companies go overseas, they don't always have a clear understanding of what they're getting into. You know, one of the things about international business that um, I'd say the startups that I've worked for maybe had a little bit less uh, knowledge of is the international tax situation. You know, taxes are different in different countries, and there's certain structures that you want to put in place. And I think people actually discount the importance of tax planning and tax strategy. And they just think, oh, well, you know, you just you go and you sign up and you open an office and you start business and it's all good. But there's things that that can expose you to um, higher taxes if you don't do it correctly. So that's one area that, you know, when I've worked with smaller businesses, I'm like, hey, we got to look at this through the tax lens, too. It's not as simple as you think it is, and we want to study this out before we, you know, make any rash decisions. I think sometimes, too, you know, you underestimate the cost of doing business overseas. So it's really good to, I think, study and kind of go into it with eyes wide open, you know, having talked with tax consultants, having really thought through the cost of setting up operations in another country. 
So to really make a plan before you just go, yes. before you just jump into it. Yeah. I mean, one company I was working with, you know, VP of sales goes over and visits a country and they come back and say, hey, we opened up a new office. I'm like, what are you talking about? You never talked to me about this. And then you had to clean it all up. Yeah. Figure it out. Finance and accounting get to clean up the messes. Fortunately, the accounting standards are starting to merge and, and getting more um, universal, but it's still, you still got to take into consideration. I was curious, maybe, like, how did how are you able to promote, like, your Japanese-speaking ability when you're looking for jobs and, like, later on in your career? How did you promote that? So, um, like I said, my, my first job, uh, they were looking for somebody who spoke the language. Uh -huh. So they specifically came to BYU because, you know, the student body in BYU, majority <laughs> speak a second language. Yeah. So they came here and just talked to the recruiting office, and that's how um, I was contacted was mm -hmm. through the recruiting office database. They knew I had that language ability. Yeah. But I do, you know, I, I put it on my LinkedIn profile. I put it on my resume early on. I don't include it on my resume anymore because I'm so far removed. I, you know, I'm not as confident speaking the language. Yeah. It's one of those things that I think if I had another opportunity to go over there, that it would come back, and it would mm -hmm. come back pretty quickly. But it's not something that I advertise right at the moment. But um, when I was closer to it and had just, you know, had those experiences speaking the language, I often included it. And I do keep it on my LinkedIn profile. Yeah. No, there's other ways. I think if you are pursuing a language and you're you're good at it, there's a lot of tests that you can take that, you, mm -hmm. that then you can put on your uh, resume to show that, you know, I have this level of language ability. Yeah. Um, in Japan, there's there's tests that you can take and you can put those on and that would help to provide evidence that you, you know, reached a certain level of, yeah. of language ability. And how did your time in Japan, did it like increase your language ability a lot living there and, and working? Yeah, I'd say the, uh, the first time going back, you know, it was a little bit rusty at first and yeah. then it came back because um, we, we were living in Japan. We weren't in a big city. There weren't a lot of people that spoke English. Yeah. There were some, but you know, so you, everything you do, you transact in, in Japanese and yeah, that really helps to, to grow the language. Besides language abilities, how do you think a student can show that they have like abilities to adapt to different cultures? How does one show that either in a job interview or in a resume? Because those are skills that are vital, but not really something you can show quite the same. So I would say if you've had opportunities to live overseas you've, or you've traveled a lot, I would definitely include some kind of information about travel or your interest in travel and your interest in global business. Uh, I think, you know, you don't have to live in a country really to learn language. I mean, people can also learn it pretty well here. I think if you have parents who have international language ability, certainly that helps. Taking it to school, taking it seriously. But I think really just expressing an interest in other countries and travel is a great one. I, I think a lot of people have probably had opportunities to, to travel and maybe travel overseas, and that would be you know, something to bring up and discuss that, you know, in overseas travel, I really enjoyed learning about the cultures and experiencing the differences. And so I'd say talking about travel, if you don't have direct living experience, and then, you know, if you've studied language in high school and in college, then certainly promote that. To close up, is there, as you've thought about like your work experience, is there any advice you'd give to a student or a young professional that you feel like you wish you had known before? So one thing we didn't really touch on is like how it impacts your family. It's difficult. Uh, an overseas assignment is difficult. And, you know, for me, it was less difficult because I had previously lived in Japan. And so it wasn't as unique and new and, and things. A lot of the expats, I think the older parents really adjusted pretty well, especially if they had a, a good 
mindset, a good attitude. Kids are probably the ones who, you know, maybe it's less voluntary for them, right? They're following their parents. So it can be a harder adjustment for kids. Some, I think, really flourish. Like, you know, my oldest child, I think, loved the experience and would do it again. And my second, I think, struggled a little bit more. So I'd say, you know, you have to go into it with eyes wide open. I, I, it's definitely a family decision, especially if your children are older. It's something that they need to be committed to because, you know, middle school, high school type age would be very difficult. So they need to go in with the, the right attitude that it's, it's also a decision that they made. They're not just being forced. But it can be a lot of fun, too. And I, I think people need to take the opportunity to really enjoy the situation. I mean, like we traveled, you know, places of Asia that I probably never would have gone if I wasn't living in Asia because it's just... It's just too far away, you know. Maybe when I'm retired, I might consider it, but taking my family there would have been very difficult. So you definitely need to, you know, understand that for your family, you've completely uprooted them and completely changed their life, and it may be very difficult. So you need to keep them in mind as well. You know, have those fun opportunities and those fun experiences to kind of help balance out the fact that it's difficult for them. How do you feel like your time there has like enriched your family? Uh, it's definitely enriched our, our diet. We eat a lot of Asian food, which I think is good. You know, kind of opens your eyes to one of, the, one of the unique things that they do in Asia is they eat vegetables for breakfast. And that's something that, you know, as, as an American, I never had done before. So it's healthier, right? So it's opened up our eyes to more healthy eating. You know, just being able to see history, you know, the history in the U.S. is, is you know, 200 plus years old, right? And there's buildings and structures that are longer, older, you know, longer standing and older than that. And there's just so much history. So for me to be able to see that was a really enriching experience. The town that we lived in, in in Japan was unique in that it was very historically significant. It was one of the last towns to fight the central government when they were unifying Japan and, and taking over the different samurai feudal areas. This was one of the holdouts. And so there's a lot of history there. That was one of the really enriching things was being able to see that history in person. It does sound like a really cool experience because you do kind of uproot your family. It really like brings you together. So the one, I guess in closing, the one thing I would say, if you're considering doing an overseas assignment, do it. I loved it. I would do it again if I had another opportunity. Well, we really appreciate you coming in today and sharing all your insights with us. We hope you'll be back next week. To continue learning, join the conversation by going to internationalhub.org.